we are here to tell you that witch books are not just for Halloween, they are in fact for life. Hello, you are listening to Grape Culture, the podcast where we talk about wine, pop culture and feminism. I'm Kim. I'm Sam. And we hope you enjoy the show. On this week's episode, we are talking about the book Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow. But before we start talking about the book, Kim, we've got some wines. What are they? We do have wines. We have two wines. I'm going to start with the very fancy looking wine Mm -hmm. that Sam procured from Sunday Times Wine Club. Yes, that's the one. Which is the Rex Mundi Vivant, which is a French sparkling red wine. Mm Mm-hmm. A grape culture first. Yes, we've not had a sparkling red. This was chosen partially because the uh, the label of it is very kind of gothic, gargoyly, powerful, sort of occulty. Look down from the rooftop while Paris burns kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. which, you know, we thought we ma- it would match with the witchy vibe, but also the idea of a sparkling red just really seemed to be quite appropriate for something that is magical. Yes. And we wanted it. So, the tasting notes are, With its opulent dark fruit and velvet smooth palette, forged in the heat of southern France, this sparkling red will seduce all with the courage to uncage it. The beast rises. Mm. Which is very sinister and also kind of sounds like the plot of a book not dissimilar to The Once and Future Witches. Yes, it sounds like uh, you would drink it when you are trying to summon some sort of spirit or demon. So, uh, some listeners may notice some differences in our sound. Um, We're recording from a different location this week, which is that we're recording from my house, Kim's house, with my own witch's familiar, Winnie the One-Eyed Cat, prowling about. So, yeah, if you hear a jingle jangle... Or some abrupt cuts. It's probably <laughs> because she tried to climb the curtains or something along those lines. There is some mayhem afoot, but it would be a witchy <laughs> episode without a cat. So exactly. What can you do? Uh, okay, I'm going to open. Ready? Oh, so dramatically smoky. It's not smoky, but... Whoa. Well, okay, that's dark. Kind of looks like schlur. <laughs> it does fit. Or like bubbly Ribena. It is, really. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> We've summoned her. <laughs> All right, well, I'm intrigued by this witchy concoction. You look so sceptical. <laughs> I'm deeply suspicious, which I love I love fizz and I love red wine. I'm deeply suspicious of fizzy red wine. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. All right, let's find Cheers. out. Cheers. Cheers. I don't, I don't really know what's happening in my mouth. No, me either. God, that's a really odd feeling. Yeah, it really is. It is it's weird, Winnie. It is weird. I have had sparkling red wine once before. Mm. Uh, in an advent calendar, a wine advent calendar, because I'm that kind of person. Uh, and it was, I'm going to say, not good. Okay. And this is not not good. This is not bad. Like, I can take more than one sip of this. Yeah. I've also had a sparkling red. I had the McPherson Full 15 sparkling red, and it was nigh on undrinkable. Mm. And this is very, very rich, but also fizzy, and I don't understand. But I think it's good. I That's think it's... The- thing oh on the one hand it's full of flavor yeah on the other hand it's gone there's no flavor yeah what what does this taste like this tastes like nothing it's like here's here's an intense amount of flavor and then none it does feel very appropriate for a a book about like spells and stuff because it does does feel like weirdly not like magical but like other (laughs) it feels uncanny in some ways it does it does i think it was a a good first choice (laughs) so yeah i i am 
maybe pleasantly surprised is a step too far, but I thought this was going to be dreadful, and it's not. Cautiously intrigued, yes. I would say. Right, well, with that slightly trepidatious review <laughs> of the wine so far, Sam, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book that we've chosen today? Yes, I will do. So the book, once again, is The Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow. We chose this because, well, I picked this because I like the cover. Genuinely the only reason, and also I quite like witch stuff. So Kim, I know you've read some books, or a book by the same author. Is that why you also chose this book? Because we both had it on our shelves and went, yes, let's talk about that. Yeah, we both had it on the list, and yeah. I... I yeah I read the Ten Thousand Doors of January, which is Alex C. Harry's other book, um, which I loved mm-hmm. and I thought was brilliant. And I kind of had from that an inkling that this was going to be an interesting story about stories and about women's power, and like that it also was going to be challenging in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And I love me a story about an underdog as well, so that's kind of why I had it in mind. And I definitely thought we do love us a witch. Um, but this is a slightly different witch tale uh, and it felt more appropriate for the summer than it did for like a wintry cold which is when we might not ordinarily be expected to talk about witches yeah this was much more a your botanical witch kind of story mm. rather than hide in cave with cauldron we are here to tell you that witch books are not just for halloween they are in fact for life <laughs> so the book itself is it's a story that revolves around three sisters bella juniper and agnes uh, and for various reasons they are separate at the start of the book uh, and then they come, come together and then their quest is to bring back magic to the women of um well the women of the world really but the book is centered in new salem which is salem that was founded after old salem burnt down so they want to bring magic back they are seeking out the way to do that through uh, a means called the lost way of avalon which is basically a tower that has loads of knowledge in it and they have to find the tower to bring the knowledge back but it's also about their experiences with the women of the town it kind of celebrates uh, witchcraft in numerous forms and how it is a form of women's power that isn't inherently evil the way it's treated it's almost like it's something mundane in some circumstances Mm, yeah Um, but yeah it's a very interesting exploration of the depictions of witchcraft and the place of witches in folklore and fairy tales and it's really good. I would also say there is a through line of sisterhood, mm. of what is the thing that binds you to another person. Is it family? Is it love? Is it something else? And there's also a an opposing side, a villain, which is the kind of um, make our streets clean again villain who is trying to kind of clean everything up and get, a, get rid of any sense of magic or women's votes it's very tied up with women's suffrage at the beginning of the book um who is the kind of main villain of the piece which was an interesting foil to Mm. everything that is going on with the women but it's uh it's a book that came out i think it came out last year year before it's fairly fairly new and like kim said it's it's a book that is good for any time of year if you're someone who likes a spooky tale it's not necessarily spooky um it's more ethereal than mm. spooky i would say having said that what was it what, what did you think of the book not to spoil the end of the episode <laughs> but i loved this book great okay i absolutely <laughs> loved this book and i knew that i would mm. but i really felt like i just i could have gone through this with a pen and underlined the whole thing <laughs> i really enjoyed reading it i found it so interesting and i loved the concept and i loved so many little details about it i i loved the story i loved the way it ended i loved the way it started i loved the 
way that it got halfway through and you kind of thought that it was you were like but, but they've done what they set out exactly, to do yeah. and then and then you're like but there's, but there's, there's 250 pages left <laughs> yeah. um which yeah i was just really really compelled by it the entire time yeah. when i read Ten Thousand doors of january which again i did really love but i'd recently read the starless sea by aaron morganston um and they have not the same plot but similar um like feelings about mm-hmm. them and I felt like I'd done 10,000 Doors of January a disservice by reading it too close to that right. other book. So I am I feel like I've not read a book like this for a long time, mm. a long, long time. And this is now like, for me, for this kind of book, almost a like guiding, like a, a biblical text of it. You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's up there with the kind of feelings that you might get from something like Hocus Pocus or Practical Magic. Yeah. But executed like it's sharper than both of those things it's that with with like a steel edge on the other side of it like an integral witch canon and a bit book. more angry yeah canon that's the word i was looking for yeah. what about you yeah i really loved it i didn't have the same sort of not the same expectations but having not read anything from this author before i didn't really know what to expect um i was pleasantly surprised almost from the first page, essentially. I thought it was written in a way... It was cleverly written in a way that didn't make it feel like it was trying too hard to be clever. Like, it felt... All of the things it did, both in terms of the pacing of the plot and the narrative techniques that we'll talk about in a bit, they felt organic to what was on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really, really hard thing to do without mm. sounding like you are taking yourself too seriously. And I don't think this did that. No. Um, it flowed it in flowed. a way that sometimes for even very well written books you're like you wrote that and went that's a really well done me you like yeah. you wrote that and you're like that's gonna be put on a tote bag yeah like <laughs> yeah and it doesn't feel like she that's... did that at any point no uh although having said that there were some excellent quotes which i think we will probably come back to later in the episode but um yeah it really good loved it so specifically you know, we we both have very positive experiences with this, but what do you think made this book stand out? What did it do really well? What did Alex E. Harry do spectacularly? I think that one of the important things that we will go into a, a bit more detail about later is the way that it, that it's uh, narrated this book through the different the different points of views of three sisters, interwoven with fairy tales and um, like nursery rhymes and that kind of thing um that you like snippets of other stories all of that really enhanced the reading experience for me it was perfectly executed i thought and i think it was necessary because i think you could have told this same story without the stories themselves yeah and it would have been good but it wouldn't have been great and i think it's because a part of this book does feel like myth and it's the bringing back of myth and you have to really believe in myth and believe in that world and the only way that you can do that is if you know the myths. Yeah. To that extent, it reminded me a little bit of the Hazelwood, mm-hmm. um, which does a similar thing, uh, but I thought that this was done slightly better. I do love the Hazelwood. I was going to say that. You know, <laughs> I, love, you know you. I love the Hazelwood, yeah. but um, yeah, I thought that this was done slightly better. It was done slightly more authentically and I think possibly because um, the stories themselves are very similar to stories that we know. Yeah. So they're not complete inventions. So yeah, I thought that was something that it did really well. And also the way that it followed those three sisters and the way that it, you got their different points of view um, and that the way that they were depicted 
and the way that it breadcrumbed out the, the history that they have between each other that is separate from this huge magical story that they find themselves in is the very real, sadly, you know, dime a dozen story of three sisters and a difficult childhood and the kind of ways that you might betray or survive mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the bonds that bind you to sisters. And I'm, I'm on record of saying, you know, I feel a certain way about sister stories. Mm-hmm. I feel a very particular way about magical sister stories. And, and yeah, so I really appreciated that feature of the book. I thought that it was done particularly well and... If Alex E. Harrow doesn't have sisters, then um, I'm surprised. Oh, first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. What about you? Um, yeah, I think that for me, one of the things that stood out was, like you say, that this element of blending conventional fairy stories into a larger narrative. Um, because the fairy tales that are this main narrative is interspersed with um, are familiar in that they are you can see the basis of Rapunzel or you can see um, other stories. That's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. But they are told in a way that benefits the witch, I think, more so mm-hmm. than in other fairy stories. And I really like that because I like a feminist retelling of a fairy tale, but they have kind of been done a lot. There is a trend mm-hmm. at the moment of retelling those kind of classic stories from a feminist or female perspective. And I like that this didn't just do that. It was we're going to tell it from the female quote unquote villain. Or we're going it's going to be about the fairy who isn't actually a fairy, she's a witch in mm. this or like that. I think it did it in a way that felt, yeah, like I said at the beginning, organic to the book. Um and so yeah, I thought that was really good. I thought it had a really good blend of like the way it talks about witchcraft and like the smell of witchery and the, mm. the bringing in the kind of the canny woman and natural aspect. Yeah, I thought it was really good that it, it wasn't just a simple this is a northern European version of a witch. There were mm. other magics in there and it considered that influence and not even briefly. No, it like, wasn't just it like was a, integral. Oh, other people do this thing to cast a spell. Other cultures do this. and it But was we're going to do it our way, which is clearly the best way. No, and no. It, was, it was a full consideration. It was integral to the plot. Yeah, so I thought that was really good. But no, I just think it was, I just think it was really well done. And it, was, it managed to surprise me, um, even when I thought I knew how it was going to end. It didn't end the way I thought it was going to end. Um, yeah, I completely agree. It was it. I I think the idea that it managed to surprise you is is an interesting one because I agree. I was like I thought I knew where this was going, and to an extent I did know where it was going. But the way the way that it took to get there was unexpected, and quite a lot of the bits in between were unexpected. Um, definitely a couple of points where I was just like, oh shit, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. But I don't like most of it. Yeah. didn't feel forced or. Mm plopped in for intrigue or anything it felt like a very real world mm-hmm. and a very real real cast of characters yeah very well fleshed out yeah for sure. speaking of the characters though did you have any in particular that you really really liked or you thought were really well well written and developed because liking and them being a well-written character are not the same thing as we talked about yes very true um i thought I mean, I thought all three sisters were interesting and well-written. Um, it took me a while to warm to Juniper. Mm-hmm. Very bratty. Yes. <laughs> but she's supposed to be. Yeah. And I, I, that's the thing. It, it's exactly that. I could appreciate her as a character. But for a while, I thought that 
it was only going to follow Juniper. Yeah. And that she was going to be the most powerful of all the witches and it was going to be one of those like in a classic youngest child yeah Yeah. and i was a bit like i hope not because she's going to be fucking insufferable (laughs) and i uh, sort of how i felt about um jesse in the athena protocol Mm -hmm. where i was like Mm -hmm. why you god's gift too and then it switched and then i was like okay i'm interested like i'm really interested and of the three i was surprised to find myself most drawn to agnes because for okay. a while I did this, I did a similar thing when it switched and I was like, oh, is it going to be Agnes? And it's like, oh, well, she has a baby and therefore like everything revolves around her. And it did that, but it didn't do that. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. But for me, the more interesting characters, as always, I had a soft spot for more of the peripheral characters mm-hmm. than I did the the main sisters. Like I, I, I liked them a lot but i never felt like they could have done it without anyone else and i was always really pleased when it turned out that the side character that i liked had not betrayed them yeah (laughs) so spoilers there is cleo (laughs) quinn who was fantastic she was pretty good uh who is a black journalist who falls in love with bella i also enjoyed so there's a sisterhood a, a committee of the sisters of avalon but it starts as a suffragist movement and one of the characters in that jenny every time she showed up again i did a little cheer because i was like yes she's still alive they haven't forgotten (laughs) about her she was just like unrelentingly like fierce and brave and in that kind of slightly timid way but she, she she grows and you could definitely see how her own book is in there like yeah. her own yeah, story sure. and in the retellings of this in this world yeah. i can see how she would have a story and her own legend and her own myth and i was like i really liked that feeling and there were peripheral characters that didn't have that that they were you know they were wise wizards or whatever that would show up in someone else's story but i really felt like she would have had her own myth i would have yeah been interested to see if they had if there had been a one of the short fairy stories that are in the book told by jenny mm because that didn't happen yeah i don't yeah i didn't think it did and of course much as you know this book is 95 (laughs) percent strong lady characters of which i could keep naming them but we don't have all night but there were two central male characters who i enjoyed uh augustus lee who i kind of enjoyed mostly because i feel like i've met him like that kind of charming pushing his luck slightly rakish kind of chap yeah and then there was mr blackwell who is just like the little doddering librarian who is just like the giles (laughs) yeah but even but not he's more doddering than giles yeah like less kick-ass than like he's just like i just i really like spells and shit and i'm really delighted he was just like so prepared and cute and i would want to have tea with him he's again he's one of those ones that you're like is he the person who's betrayed everyone and then you're like it's not him yeah yeah i was delighted and when they when they went to his house yeah and he was like i did i did already ward the windows but probably not as well as you would (laughs) and i was just like you're so cute i love you so much yeah Yeah, he was a ledge so basically i think i've just named most of the characters in this book (laughs) so it's all winning all the time uh what about you yeah, um, I agree. I mean, there weren't a huge amount of characters in this that I was like, I hate you. But, well, okay, obviously you hate the villain because he's a villain. But he's a very well-written villain because he manages to be both slimy and, like, bullying and believable. Yeah, he's a lot of things. Um, 
which is easy to do when you've lived for a thousand years by mm-hmm. slipping your skin and possessing people. Uh, spoiler. Yeah, I, th- I did think Gideon Hill was very well written, if not likably written. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know what? I think I would have liked to see a peripheral villain. Like, I know there was uh, his adopted daughter. But she wasn't but really, she wasn't really a, a villain. No, She I was always liked... a victim. Yeah. And you could tell. I would have liked him to have, like, a henchman. Yes. Like, some sort of... I actually thought yeah. the same thing. Like, yeah. he didn't have a crew, which is made sense. But yeah. I would have liked even, like, a red herring villain. Where, yes. it, like, it wasn't anything to do with him it was just some other twat and i guess you, you're supposed to sort of have that with the dad but the thing is you already know the dad's dead yeah i suppose that is true um, actually but like a almost like a J. Jonah jameson type was investigating them but wasn't yeah necessarily trying to yeah i don't know something some like kind that. of other i suppose you had thing. a bit of red herring with like oh no it's cleo she's the bad one but and you had the constant yeah. dread of like society yes but i i agree <laughs> i also I felt like there should have been he needed well, a, there could have been he needed a side a, a, not a necessarily a psychic foil or something yeah yeah um but i did think he was very well done um i thought like you i really struggled juniper at the beginning i was like ah just shut up (laughs) um and then like well she is 17 and the whole point is that she's the wild one and everything i was like oh yeah but i don't think artemis is this whiny but then she does she does you do grow to like her a bit more which is good i think of the sisters my favorite was probably agnes as well because i don't really know why i think she was the most complicated she was, yeah. I think she was Juniper, hard, but also like loving. And yeah, she was. Juniper was complicated in the way that you're complicated as a seventeen-year-old. Yeah, especially a gothy seventeen-year-old. <laughs> yeah. And cut me on her mum. Fuck you. And Bella wasn't super complicated. She was just repressed. Mm. Whereas Agnes was like all the things, had all the things, and she was constantly wrestling with motherly and sisterly tenderness and what it means to be strong, and then. Yeah what it means to be safe yeah and i thought that that was like the fact that it was her motherly tenderness that both made her powerful and made her weak to betrayal and, and, cl- and closing a- herself atta- off yeah yeah, yeah was wearing your I think, heart outside your body kind of thing was really interesting yeah. worth also noting that bella was only repressed because of some hardcore reform conversion. school yeah 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 uh, conversion therapy which sounded they didn't really go into but obviously it was alluded to and as with all of these things, it did not sound pleasant. Mm. To put it mildly. Yeah, so I, I really liked Agnes. Uh, I liked the way that, that, that... I did like most of them. I was on, I was in two minds about Cleo, about whether I liked her or not as a character. I think she was. I think she had some really good bits, but then also sometimes I felt like she wasn't... Present enough? Yeah. She yeah. wasn't fully... And I know that there were, like she obviously had her own things with the, um, the, the daughters of... Tituba. Tichiba. Um I would like to see more for her mother, mm. uh, Araminta. Agreed. I enjoyed her. Yeah. I think I think I agree with you there that sometimes Cleo did not feel present enough. Like not an ex- she's not she's not quite as belittled to be like an extra or a spare part or just like window dressing. She was her own character in her own right, but she was more interesting before we knew that she wasn't betraying anyone. Mm. And by the time that they finally decided that they were in love, I was like, okay. Like, <laughs> I loved it, don't get me wrong, but, yeah. like, she stopped being quite as vibrant, I guess, would be the word. Yeah, everything kind of... Um, it was all just... She became less of a character and more just uh, Bella's love interest. Or a convenient escape route. Yeah, but yes, it was very much a... This group is protected and um, 
mistrustful of other witches or other group play the cards very close to their chest and then suddenly it was like hello I love you please here are all the family secrets mm. and I felt there was some reticence but I think it didn't it, it crumbled quite mm. quickly I think I don't know if you I, I do agree but at the same time I don't think that it was out of nowhere mm. like I think everything that you've just said and the, the, the criticism that I might have about how Cleo became a love interest is still really, really muted. And I think that her decision to open up the, you know, the doors of their knowledge and, and make the safe house came at the exact moment that it started to be necessary because it went from this is you fool white woman playing a game yes. that is only going to get yourself hurt to this has become a war on everyone. Yeah, fair enough. And that moment where it was like, we've got more important things to worry about. And even then, yeah. like, she was like, I'm on your side, hear all the stuff. And even then, there was stuff that they weren't letting everyone know. They never gave them access to the tunnels without her. Yeah, that and sort so of when stuff. They let the civilians through, they were blindfolded and things like yeah. that. So, yes, okay, fair enough. Yeah, I don't know. I think, like you say, though, at the beginning of the book, she was a much more present character. She was a much more enigmatic and interesting character. And then she sort of became the trusty sidekick almost. Yeah, I think that's a fair mm. that's a fair point. But then but... The, the focus of the book shifted for the second half. So Yeah, there was yeah. other shit going on. <laughs> yeah. Was there anyone else that you didn't think, well, not really saying that she was written badly or anything, but were there any characters that you thought weren't written well or were pointless <laughs> i mean there are there are a few characters that i thought were pointless but most of them are only introduced quite fleetingly anyway so i won't i won't dwell on them i think that given her importance in the final scenes mm-hmm. i thought that i could have had more of grace wiggin mm-hmm. i did really enjoy the moments that i had with her but I, you know, this book is 500 pages long, just yeah. about. And I f- think that you could have given even like a scene or two more without yes. any of the sisters involved. Just yeah. like seeing her wrestling with her own thing. um, Or in the epilogue as well. Like she wasn't in the aftermath. And I thought that she should have been. Yeah, I mean, especially considering a whole town saw her murder her adopted dad. And then... They were just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to leave her to it. Like, she should have been rescued or so, not rescued. But you know what I mean? There should have been a, and a follow-up. And it felt like that was what the book was leading towards. Yeah. When it, when it became obvious that she was not going to be the villain that we all thought she was. But I just felt like I would have liked more from her again. Like, she... In a way, like Jenny, I felt like she could have had her own myth. But she never got the chance to have it. Yeah. Whereas some of them, I don't feel like that. Some of them, I feel like, you know, like I say, they're just side characters um, who are perfectly good side characters. Whereas she was an, a well-used side character, but underdeveloped for my tastes. But of course, I always pick <laughs> weird people to fixate on in books. So <laughs> aside from characters, though, was there anything else in the book that you kind of didn't think it did so well obviously we've been singing the praises so we're under no illusions <laughs> that we like the book yeah um but every you know nothing is perfect did, was there anything um, that you thought there were there was one thing that i was a bit confused about and it may be because i was trying to finish and the thing that confused me was the plague that 
Gideon created. Mm-hmm. Um, so the character Gideon Hill, uh, he's the the ultimate baddie in the book, um, has been reincarnating himself over time by stealing people's bodies. Um, and souls. Cash, bodies and souls, as you do. Um, and throughout that time, he has created a series of illnesses and plagues, uncanny illnesses or uncanny mm-hmm. fevers, um, with which he has been afflicting the people around him. And my my question with that, and you might be able to answer this, and this might not be a failing of the book, mm. uh, was what was the point? I don't know if I can answer the what was the point, but I do have some ideas. I do have some okay. thoughts. But okay. specifically in the book, I think that there is a correlation between like what's causing it. So at the beginning of the book, Bella faints because um, and gets a fever because she does too much magic and she's not strong enough we've all been on those benders yep we've all been on that um devil's fever uh which you get burnt up with witching which is like you get too hot and you get a fever because you've done more than you are capable of yeah and then at the end of the book gideon explains that this plague that has been this fever that has been ravaging the city is an extenuation of um he caused it and he also caused what is essentially meant to be the Black Death. Every time he stole someone's soul, it was more and more magic out in the world. Right. Um, and so he was responsible for it. And the reason that it didn't affect him is because he was stealing other people's souls. So he was kind of deflecting it onto other people. He couldn't die. It would spread out of him. So by taking someone's shadow and their will, he was essentially like absorbing their like life force right. okay. and he would he was able to then push this fever out and it would start to spread or like it would for, for whatever reason trade places yeah. and start to spread and that it was catching so i think that it's it, i think that basically it was like a bastardization bastardization of this devil's fever i don't think it's exactly the same but i think that it's meant to be the same kind of thing and it's the fact it's the, the fact of the way magic. that yeah, yeah the ill effect of magic except that in his case it's affecting people around him because he's um, protecting, like, the magic that he's doing is meant to keep him alive. But I also think that the reason why it's necessary, there is historical evidence that a lot of witch trials came after a period of of famine or plague or something, because it was believed that that was a scourge sent by God to punish the devilry that was happening or caused by witches themselves so i think the, right, the idea okay. of having the plague the whole way through is is really historically historically yeah. sound and accurate and it's it, okay. it does tend to be the, the same thing and it's, right. it's like a okay. human condition okay. you've got to blame someone yeah, yeah um, find the scapegoat. yeah so yeah. that's why i think that that's necessary okay fair enough but if that's the point that she's making maybe it was too subtle i yeah if that is the point i understand in the context of what the story is but also i felt like she could have told the same story because this is a story in which actual acts of witchcraft are happening it didn't feel like it had the same weight to it mm, yeah at but, best it was a yeah. plot point like I, I i kind of agree with you that it, that it wasn't it was too subtle if yes. that's what they were trying to do i thought it was a good thing that he didn't intend it mm-hmm. but then he utilized it yeah. for his own gain which I thought was good because it was one of the things that showed that he wasn't as powerful as he thought he was. Same as when he got injured um, by Agnes and everything, where she says like, "You are, you are still just a man, and a man yeah. like a man can still be hurt." Yeah. And I think like that is 
it was interesting that even if he was this ultra powerful witch who could do unspeakable things that no one's even ever heard of he still couldn't control the after effect after effects of it yeah. and i think that's quite interesting but i agree like i i don't know if it was made enough of so that was that was the biggest weakness that, that i found was i just at the end of it like that one didn't didn't mesh with mm. everything else for me but in that context it does but you shouldn't need yeah explaining what did you think were there any other points that you thought there was a general sense that i had around the rules of magic and everything in this book Hmm, um sometimes changed a little bit too conveniently for my liking but i also kind of thought that maybe that was the point Hmm. like the whole the, the the narrative of the book they are learning that you don't need all the trappings you just need a strong enough will and there's a very like strong message behind that but sometimes i was a bit like but i want more rules because <laughs> uh, i'm lame and also every so often i was like why have you not got the point yet why are you not solving the shadow thing <laughs> like how have you yeah. known about the shadow thing for so long yeah and you've not solved the shadow thing like the thing when um uh juniper's in the deeps and she's like he has shadows and he, the shadows and they went in yeah. her mouth and, they and she was like oh well that's and not the, the biggest and the, problem and then bella was just like what well, doesn't matter and you're like just steal one goddamn book guys one book like come on that really annoyed me and they spent all their time putting salt around doors which didn't fucking do anything (laughs) they knew what they were up against they knew that there were weird creepy shadow men like figure out a way to deal with the weird creepy shadow men stop running away and faffing about with salt and chardonnay (laughs) but as angry and passionate as I sound that's a very minor quibble (laughs) On that rant, let's have a break, I think. Yeah, let's have a break. But before we go, let's talk about the uh, Rex Mundi Vivante. Um, is it Vivante or just Vivant? Vivant! Uh, I'm just adding ease where I want to. just thought it sounded fancier. Um, which is, again, this sparkling red wine. What do you think of it? I have possibly off mic described it as kind of like a red wine milkshake or a fizzy smoothie. Yeah, yeah. And that is still true, uh, which sounds gross. And it's not quite as gross as it sounds, but it's still a slightly unsettling experience. I'm not sure I'd have it again. My mouth feels very frothy. <laughs> which is what made me think of milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not terrible. It's I, I really enjoyed the experience of trying it. And like, I wouldn't say no to it again, but... Uh, sorry, I wouldn't say no to it if someone put it in front of me. But it's weird. It's weird. The The concept of a fizzy red is weird anyway. Um, but I will say this is the best fizzy red I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Two I have had. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are looking... Seconded. Yeah, if you are looking for a sparkling red, we would recommend this one. If you are looking for a sparkling red, however, we would question why. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's drinkable. I mean, we've had the whole bottle, which is... remarkably fruity. Yeah. Uh, which comes back to that smoothie thing. I didn't hate it. Um, I have enjoyed this more than some of the t- traditional reds we've had on this podcast. So, yeah. Good. So, we're going to have a break. We'll be back afterwards to talk some more about the once and future witches. So, we are back from our break. We have a brand new bottle of wine to talk about and we're going to continue talking about the book Once and Future Witches by Alex E. Harrow. Uh, Kim, what's our second bottle of wine? Tell me more! So, 
our second bottle of wine is from the new influx of new wines to M&S. Yay, Marks and Spencer. Yeah. Um, so this is the Bella Verita Pericone wine. Organic wine mm. off of 2021. Mm-hmm. So this is a Sicilian red wine. Um, the reason I chose it is probably obvious. <laughs> number one, it has the word Bella in it. Nice. Uh, number two, nice like the jump. bottle itself really is the fact that it's an organic wine. It's a very earthy looking bottle of wine. It's, uh, the, the label is kind of like um, autumn leaves e. And it just, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my God, it's that. It's, <laughs> it, it reminded me of the cover of the book. It reminded me of that general feeling of like the kind of earthy magic that I think is in this book. This very real. Yeah. Um, it's not all wands and, and fairies. It's it's very much like the real nitty gritty of like, here's a feather and here's a stone. And that's how we're going to make this yeah. work. Yeah. So it is described as a juicy unoaked red wine with uh tastes of soft elegant red berry fruit and goes well with grilled meat and pasta super generic um <laughs> it's medium bodied suitable for vegans okay <clears throat> so yeah so it's a organic it's an red wine it's an earthy organic red perfect oh uh, i don't know um i'm reminded of a dylan moran sketch which i actually that's not bad <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. It, yeah. It's all threat and no follow through. <laughs> it's all bluster. <laughs> it's a grower, not a shower, this one, I think. Yeah, it gets mellower the more you drink it. Yeah. I feel like this is when you want a glass of red wine with dinner. Yeah. You have a glass of this. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we're going to do the whole bottle. But... It's not heartburn. I think it's got that classic no. medium bodied vibe where it's like it's not... you're, you're not trying to be anything. It's not a tacky. So far, two wines that have been surprising. The middle of the road. Which the book was not. But it was surprising Very which true. wasn't the middle of the road. Very true. Sam, I think you have some more questions and um, points that we want to hint. Um, some of these are brought from the back of the book a little mm-hmm. bit. Or at least inspired by the kind of book club stuff that you get at the back of the book. Yes, there are reading group questions at the back of um, Once for Future Witches. These kind of based on that, but there are also some that we wanted to build on because there were more specific things that we wanted to touch on. Um, and the first one is, um, so the book, as mentioned, covers a variety of very various fairy tale elements. So um, it talks about the places of witches and fairy tales. It has these retellings of fairy tales within it. It's stories within stories within stories. Um, how do you think? How well do you think these traditional storytelling methods were utilised? Like it talks about things like the power of three. Mm. It talks about you know power of seven, the the once upon a time. What what did you notice throughout the story that was very traditional fairy tale? And do you think it served the story and what it was trying to do? I thought it was brilliantly done. I have to say, I thought that it was really integral. I've I've always sort of thought, and I think most people have always thought you know it's factual that you know fairy tales and such are ways to give warnings Mm -hmm. to children to keep them safe and i thought that it was really well done and familiar echoes of stuff that we know um so i think there are about five uh stories seven seven seven. good job because it's the rule of seven duh wow (laughs) god i only know that because it says it in the back of the book ah Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so there are seven 
stories told throughout the book, um, which all of which echo real Brothers Grimm esque. Brothers Grimm esque. Um, I really enjoyed those stories. And I always felt that they came along very naturally and organically. They gave a little precursor to what was going to happen next. But it, it took me about three or four stories before I really realised that that was always going to be the case. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was like, it's that's how subtly it's done. But subtly but entertaining. You don't feel like it's a break in the story that you want to skip past. You're not skipping past those stories. It felt natural. I think especially because it's the fact that the characters in the book are telling the stories is necessary, I think, for you to feel that way. Um, I also think the um, snippets of rhyme and spell that open every chapter, the epigraphs, is that the word? Uh, Yes, I think it is. I really loved them, and I thought that they were clever for two reasons, because on the one hand, they represent within the story the snippets of spells and half-heard rhymes that every woman seems to know, which in turn are very reflective of how we ourselves think of fairy tales. Like, everyone has heard it slightly differently. They've always been um, something that's been passed down. Even the Grimm's fairy tales, obviously, were collected by Grimm brothers uh, from oral storytelling. And that so many of these rhymes and things tell of an older wisdom, a thing that we lose, I think, the more that we can reach for Google the more mm. that we're less likely to believe it. And then I really enjoyed them because of what they nodded to in literature, um, because it made me think of, you know, lofty tombs of basically great white men. But they always <laughs> start every chapter with a little epigraph or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, a little spaying by some... Other dead white dudes. Yeah, yeah, by some philosopher that no one's ever fucking heard of just to show how clever they were. Yeah. And the, the difference is that the ones at the beginning of these ones, and it's every chapter... They are practical, again, slightly foreshadowing, but they are homely, they are small, they are domestic, and they are to cure or solve seemingly mundane issues that have a greater portent and a greater purpose um, and can be used to wield greater power than, than they may be necessarily seem. So it's like, don't underestimate. Yes always appreciate i've always been a um a big advocate for like the importance of skills of of like home crafts and stuff and how yeah i've i've been a big fan of that for a long time because i don't think that they are inherently evil or or unfeminist and i think that that's one of the things that i really enjoy about this book is that it shows how much you wield power in the things that you have to hand no matter who you are and how much how dispossessed you are people found power in their ways and it made me think of things like is referenced fleetingly in this book but the underground railroad and the quilting and the way that the signs were built into quilts that were yeah. made for other people and um and all this sort of stuff people have always 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 wielded power in or subversion in whatever tiny way and most of those times it's it's the really the least suspected things and i just thought that all of that was so well displayed in this book and then used as a literary device as well so it was both applauded and weaved through every chapter not just at the beginning not just in the 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 actual stories that are being told but also just 
halfway through a chapter, someone will say something of like, blah, 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 I'll just go get some lavender and twigs. And you're like, why? And they're like, why would you do that? That's just an old wives tale. And you're like, have you not cottoned on yet? <laughs> um, but little yeah. things like that, yeah. I just thought it was so, it was so well stitched yeah. through the book. Yeah, it was a celebration of the power of women from all different aspects of what that power means. And I think one thing, this is slightly off the fairy tale topic, but building on something you just said, like this idea of power if you were to look at it in the terms that we traditionally define power, which are, you know, political power and economic power, and then you have, you know, domestic power and kind of things like that, this kind of de-escalates throughout the book. Like, you have Juniper joining the women's suffrage um, mm. movement at the very beginning, and it's very politically motivated, and then it kind of not devolves, because that sounds like I'm belittling it, but... It fizzles. It, it fizzles. The power comes from the little stuff. The power comes from the spells that they're collecting for, you know, to heal a burn, or mm. to um, to find lost objects, or things like that, and it it starts with these kind of lofty, traditional heights of power, and then it, you realise that the actual power comes from these, these smaller... Subversion. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really, really well handled. Mm. Uh, and those spells do go part of the way and it's i also really like the um the epigraphs at the beginning of each chapter because <laughs> they give you a snippet of what's coming up yeah uh because you know like it, it there was um i think it was the spell where they finally found the tower of avalon mm. and the, the the spell at the beginning is like spells to find something it was it wasn't yeah. as trite as that or um uh when um eve who is agnes's daughter is sick there's a thing at the beginning for curing infant fever Cure or fever so yeah you, you get a foreshadowing but it's not always as explicit as yeah you think or it's reimagined or it's as i said yeah. like much more powerful and all this sort of stuff and i yeah i thought that it was really yeah. really cool yeah i loved that and it's also it felt cool to see things that you knew yeah. Yeah. and feel like you could change yeah with a little bit of a little bit of magic. Like a little bit, you know, like a little bit of spit, a little bit of grind yeah. and yeah. like a feather or something. Yeah. It felt really sure. cool. And it was the fact that every, th- every time there was one of these spells and they were like, um, was it, you know, maybe three lines, four lines, whatever. And then it went, uh, a spell to do this, um, which requires a stone and also hatred or like yeah. <laughs> just... Um, the will, the way, the words. Yeah, exactly. The will, the way, the words. Precisely. So... There are various traditional storytelling elements, or traditional fairy tale or tradition elements that we've seen in this book that we've talked a bit about. Um, one of which they come back to time and time again is the the maiden, the mother, the crone, mm-hmm. which is kind of triptych of female characters that you see throughout not just traditional folk stories but literature from Ever. thousands of years ago. Like there are three yeah. female archetypes. There aren't just three, but for you know, for a lot of the historical literature with women in it, you can put them into these categories. Yeah. And obviously this is a book in which characters are three sisters, and these sisters are positioned to be each of those characters. So one is ostensibly yeah. the maiden, one is the, <laughs> the mother, one is the uh, is the crone. Do you think it's as easy as saying Bella is the crone, Agnes is the mother? Juniper is the, is the maiden. Or do you think there's more complexity to that? Do you think that this turns that narrative on its head? Yeah. Talk to me. Tell yeah. Me um, I definitely think it's intended to turn the narrative on its head. Yeah. 
because for a lot of this, I was like, how the fuck old are they? Like, I don't understand. Like, I, I just couldn't. And I, it tells so, you. So it tells you. So Juniper is 17. Yeah. Um, when their mother dies, who dies when Juniper is born. Yeah. Agnes is five. Yeah. So in the time of this book, Agnes is 23. Yeah. No, 22. Yeah. Uh, and then um, uh, Bella's Bella. two years older. Yeah. So she's, she was seven years older than Juniper. So she's 24. Yeah. So these are women. And they're going on about how much of a fucking crone she is. Because she's got prematurely grey hair. And I was like, I just, I kept thinking, like, because the, I kept forgetting because the way that they kept talking about her being a crone. (laughs) And I was like, okay, so she's like 40. And I was, you know, like, which again, does not make someone a crone, but at least like. But in the traditional sense. At least you could argue that she's crone adjacent, you know? A crone is a woman who is older than or at the top end of childbearing age for the purposes of traditional storytelling. Exactly. And then I realised early on that they were kind of doing that. Mm. In fact I realised it before they realised it and I was like, can you get there please? How, like I've been reading this book for three chapters and you haven't understood it yet. Like what? And then of course I mean it it starts, doesn't it, with like Juniper was the wild one. Yeah. And then like, yeah. But then, like, the whole point is that they were never... You never needed to have them. They just happened to be there. They were representations of a kind of woman. And and they even say, like, you could be... A a woman can be a maid, uh, a maid, a mother, a crone, sometimes all three. Um, And I loved that as well. Because I thought that that was a really, like... A, like a good point and i think that the whole point is like you don't need you don't need all the trappings and the rules you don't need that three as powerful as they are whatever helps you get there it wasn't completely um doing away with that framework no. because there still is that framework but it was also showing you that there's room even within a framework to grow and you not you don't have to be predefined and I thought that that was really clever because you could definitely read this book as like uh organized religion and organized politics is the worst and anarchy for everyone and, and mm-hmm. atheism for and everyone, everyone should go and live in the woods yeah and I don't think that it's telling you that I don't think it's telling you that rules are bad or that frameworks are bad if they help you understand something I think it's relying too much on that and um forgetting forgetting the people in the middle of that is the thing that makes you yeah. either lose something or corrupt yeah um i think it, it it framed it much more as um these kind of archetypes more as a web than a, a hierarchy um in that you can be multiple things like it talked about the you know when, when you come back to meet the, the original three who are the ghosts in the tower like <laughs> but they make it very clear then that just because they have this title or they are seen in this way doesn't make them that like the maiden is specifically pointed out as not being a maiden in that sense because mm-hmm. um, she fucks <laughs> the maiden fucks the, the maiden fucks but um, yeah I think it, it allows people to be more than one thing and I think also what this does related to the maiden crone um, mother thing is it and this also comes back to the storytelling thing, is it plays with this idea of what a trio, the traditional trio, especially with sisters, because you have, like, they, they talk about it a bit in this, um, like, the oldest two sisters are always 
always come to no good or they they, they die mm. or they are nothing and then the youngest one leads the way or there are certain virtues attributed to each of them like wise, fair, brave mm. or whatever and it does it weaves all of those typical triads mm-hmm. through all of the characters it kind of fought against that predestination whether it was you're the oldest you're the crone you're this mm-hmm. you're that and it, I think it made it more nuanced yeah it both exactly nuanced it both included the characteristics that these uh you know these figures would have and subverted them and took the strengths and weaknesses that they all would have so they might have had like defining characteristics but it really shied away from anyone as just one person at no point was anyone a symbol even the villain wasn't a symbol and i think that that is really hard to do and um it's one of the reasons why i love this book so much is that i just think that it was really incredibly designed and articulated in a way that i'm struggling to unweave and it's not just because we've had a bottle of wine like it's it's going to be something that i think about for a while but it just made every yeah it made every character multifaceted Because, because people you be are. A, you can be a mother and a warrior, as it works yeah. out. You can be a mother and a lover. You can be mother lover. Yeah. Um. You can be the maiden, but you can also again be like if you don't being a maiden doesn't make you weak and uh, waiting for man to save you. It makes you Artemis. It makes you uh, yeah. Athena. It makes you like it exactly. It can things. make you it it and it's all the things that people try to not make people you know we've talked about this before with the strong female character trope or like yes. the damsel in distress and all this sort of stuff and how much it this annoys three very different strong yes leads. exactly and yeah. how much it annoys me when every strong female character is the jun you know the juniper at the beginning of the book yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah um oh my god rail against the man yeah, yeah like it it really it really does a very nuanced tale of what of a strong character not even just a female character a strong character is i yeah. keep coming back to the word they use which is nuanced yeah it, it was, was brilliantly it done was very yeah and i think it will it's a book that requires multiple speaking of the nuance <laughs> um and the multifaceted and well-rounded characters like i feel like this book really had a goal towards inclusivity it really included quite a lot of inclusivity what were your thoughts about the inclusivity of the characters in this book yes. Um, yeah, I think certain things were handled really well. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that this is ultimately a book with three white women at its core mm-hmm. um, because of the way these women are described. So it is a book told predominantly from a white white female perspe- perspective, white cis female perspective. Um, however, there are characters in there who are not um, white or female or cis Um Cleo, we've talked about, is uh, a black character who is queer and ends up in a queer relationship with Bella um, after Bella had been through some fairly intense conversion therapy, like we said. Mm-hmm. So um, there is, you know, there's that aspect. Um, Jenny, who we've talked about, is a trans character. Um, there are uh, various other characters. There's um, uh, Native American characters mm-hmm. in here as well. That So it touches on various different groups of women or different representations of women who are engaged in witchcraft from various cultures um but it doesn't do it in like a hey look we got one of them which is a really horrible way of saying that but you know how some books kind absolutely of, we've talked about yeah, it before yeah. um 
diversity roulette we've yes talked about. exactly yeah um but this um like the story with cleo her this the struggles of the um the daughters of tichaba and the way they have built up these defenses for themselves and um they protect themselves is a narrative that continues and there are various things that they basically say like you won't understand this because you are white or you don't get to have this yeah you can't have this because this is ours just because you're white doesn't mean you're entitled to everything um and that is a very valuable thing to hear Mm -hmm. and it's a very important thing to hear sometimes um so i think i think it did it really well i think it did it in a way again i think i keep using this word organic but it's such a it it just it felt like like it suited like the wine it felt like it suited the way the story was being told and it didn't feel like it was virtue signaling agreed agreed in in ways that we've talked about on this podcast um i actually underlined one of the uh lines which was um juniper slings an arm around gertrude's stiff shoulders our girl here fought in the indian wars out west mr lee she and a bunch of other girls busted out of their boarding school using saints only knows what kind of witching because she won't tell us and joined their mamas and aunties on the front lines gertrude pats juniper's arm and says without a trace of apology not every word and way belongs to you and I just thought that that, it was just so. It was like, it was almost like throwaway, but not. Yeah. It was just plopped perfectly in the middle yeah. of the chapter. And it was, it's one example. This, as I said at the beginning, yeah. this book is riddled with good lines. Yeah. It, There's so much more than that. And I think also, just, sorry, just while I think of it. Before Please do. Escape from my mind, because my mind is fucking sick at the moment. But um, the, one of the things I think this does really well is like, we talk about women's suffrage quite a lot, um, particularly in the early twentieth, uh, late nineteenth century, and it's often talked about as this amazing victory, which it was, but it was predominantly a white victory. This book talks about the fight for women's suffrage, and yet the uh, reluctance of white women to include women of colour in the what they were fighting for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I've not seen in another book dealing with women's suffrage mm-hmm. in the same era. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say other books don't do it, but mm-hmm. to see that and to see that like. Yes, woo feminism, but only our feminism, not mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. Like that I think that was really important. And I think for all the I've sort of maligned Juniper, she does play an actually very important part in that whole narrative and also in uh in a lot of the inclusivity narrative because she is, for all intents and purposes, a very sheltered seventeen year old girl. Yeah, hick for a lack of a better word. And it's, it's not a good word, but it's a word that is used in the book. Yeah, and she she doesn't understand a lot. She wasn't taught a lot, and she was given a lot of information that was very black and white, including in every sense of the word. Yeah, in every sense of the word, including like this is what sin is. This is what the constitution promises you, and justice yeah. is one thing. You know, like justice is the law, and the law is justice. And blah blah blah. And she, throughout the book, learns things and learns that things are not her business Mm -hmm. and learns that things are not sinful or to challenge her pre-held beliefs. And as quite a a stubborn and bratty person, like coming to terms with those lessons is, is... interesting and it's exactly the kind of thing that you do do at 17 you do start to unpick um but in a really profound way for her i think you know because it affects both her family her 
her friendships, her own feeling about who she is. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's how we learn about Jenny is yeah. because Juniper doesn't have any kind of romantic relationship, which I loved, by the way. Side note. Um, she's asexual. I did wonder. But it's never, you know, But said, it's never explicitly it's, said, it's but I did wonder. Implied. Um, but she talks about the importance of the friends that she made and she describes Jenny as the first friend and she would like she, she's one of the people that she would give up stuff for and doesn't want her to give up but she would let her give up yeah. if it meant enough to her um, and that's how they learn uh, she learns that Jenny is trans and I just thought that like her ability to learn and it's right up until almost the last page yeah when she's ostensibly dead, she's still she learning. Ghost, but she's not ghost. Yeah, and I just think that that is so important. It's so important to see a 17-year-old who doesn't fucking know everything, who thinks they know everything, and doesn't see fucking know everything. Learn. I don't know about you, but I read a, you know, a middling amount of YA, mm-hmm. and they always fucking know everything. They're always super, super woke, and they know everything, and they're all so great, and they only, the only thing that they have to learn is like, how to accept themselves. How to accept themselves yeah. or like don't be a bitch to your friend when you're in a bad mood and that kind of stuff or like the, yeah. the, the cute boy, boy secretly likes you all along or whatever the fuck it is. Obviously there's a lot more to it than that and I'm being very dismissive but they always seem to know a lot more than I feel like I knew even at 17 even in the internet age and I know that this is not the internet age but this is a magical age. <laughs> but yeah like I really appreciated that and I thought that that was particularly well done in the yeah. fields of um sexual sexuality gender and race like she learned a lot yeah so before we come to the end of the show this week were there any particular quotes that you felt really stood out from this book that uh you will that will stick with you i mean every second line but <laughs> i underlined a bunch of stuff in the first half of the book and then got so wrapped up in it yeah that i stopped underlining so um i've already mentioned the one which was the uh not every word and way belongs to you yes very good um but there are a few others one was and i'm sure this is going to be one that you've already got which is um but she understands what miss stone is asking she's asking aren't you tired yet of being cast down and cast aside of making do with crumbs where we once wore crowns she's asking aren't you angry yet i just i i could not get over the poetry of how witchcraft and feminism and power were interwoven. Um, There were other quotes. I think one of the reasons that I um, started to really love Agnes was when she said, um, she's, this is in the moment when she's speaking with the person who fathered her child and Floyd gives her a little shake but I love you oh Agnes doubts the hell out of that he loves pieces of her the thunder blue of her eyes the full moon glow of her breasts in the dark but he never even met most of her hmm. yes um, that was very good and yeah, yeah I loved that and that was the moment where I was like oh like Ooh. I was like oh I like Ooh. you Agnes I can see where this is going yeah. but I already like you but yeah. I'm gonna hold yeah. out on you for a bit longer yeah just um, while you're on that page I have two quotes from that section where she meets with where Floyd accosts her, which is a very, very, very small scene. It's maybe Teeny like tiny. a page yeah. and a half. And I picked two quotes from that. Go for it. I thought it was good. Um, so one is that uh, um, he says, um, Aggie Love, talk to me. What's so hard about calling a woman by her full name? Why do men always want to give you some smaller, mm-hmm. sweeter name than the ones your mama gives you? 
I thought that was fucking great mm-hmm. uh, because this whole pet name thing can eat a dick. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really good. And then the other one was um, uh, so it's do, to do with him being refused when um, mm. uh, he says I know exactly what you're going to read. She tries to edge past him but he puts his hands on her shoulders imploring I don't understand why would you turn me down? I could take you out of this place. He wears a soft hand at the dim alley, dim alleys and sooty brick of the west side. I make an honest woman out of you. I could give you anything you want. He sounds bewildered, like his proposal was the mathematical equation, and Agnes proposed the incorrect response. Like a nice boy being told no for the first time in his life. Yeah. It's a fucking nice boy. Thing. Oh. I'm a nice guy. And no, then... you can't have it. But I'm nice. Oh, that really got me. <sighs> this was the last quote that I underlined before I started getting so wrapped up in it that I couldn't keep I couldn't underline anything but I honestly I'd listened beyond this point and then went back to my physical copy to find this exact quote to underline it which was um you girls have done very well Juniper wants to write the word girls on a ribbon and strangle him with it yes oh my god yes I love that quote and I was just like so oh god I just felt it in every vein and sinew of my being like it just i do i very rarely identify with the violent characters in any book the aggression everything and i was like because i was listening to the section as well like it snapped my whole body i was like i want to take a fucking ribbon and strangle it was just also oh god it's so good foreshadowing to the ribbon strangling yes yes it's yeah. just yeah oh i'm gonna say it again juniper wants to write the word girls on a ribbon and strangle him with it but basically this is like you i was reading the book and like i could highlight so much of this because it's, it's so poetic it's so cutting it's so it's the kind of book you read and you're like i wish i wrote this yeah yeah absolutely i, I want like I want it written on my walls, you know. Yeah. Like I want it on my skin. It's just so yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's so the thing. Good. It's really tapping into a fundamental thing. And you know, as we've said, we are two white women. We caveat a lot in our episodes about that because we 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 try to be as aware we as we can be of our privilege. But there are also some things that just hit right, and they hit right for the right reasons. And I think this is one of those books where it's like it's this isn't. This isn't ignoring the many for the sake of the few. This isn't pure white feminism. This is something that is vis. It is a visceral book. Very visceral, yeah. Um, but it's also a poetic book, and it's also the thing is really fucking entertaining. Yeah, it doesn't. Oh, like it's again, not we, we've just not to... even talked about the linguistic choices, but it it manages to make these characters from the eighteen nineties talk in a way that well probably anachronistic is engaging and feels Not right entirely and anachronistic. Feels, well yeah but it feels right it yeah. feels it's and that's again really hard to do it is it's both engaging. yeah it's a brilliant like social commentary it's a brilliant historical commentary it's a fantastic folklore narrative and it's also just a really fucking good book we might as well take this glorious praise and lead into our ratings exactly um do we want to start i feel like we should hold the suspense the rating on the book just for like half a second longer and end on a high i don't really want to 
everyone's going to be surprised, but let's fucking do it. <laughs> um, cool. So let's talk first about the Rex Mundi Vivant, which yes. was the first uh, wine we had this evening, which was the sparkling red. What did you think? Frothy smoothie milkshake red wine. Okay. Um, but I didn't hate it. Random. Um, I I would give it a three. It's better than average and marked against the gradient of sparkling red wines. It is far superior. But if I never ha- drink it again, I won't be sad. Fair enough. Yeah. But if I drink it again, I won't be sad. So three. Yes. Understandable. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to, I'm bordering a three and a 3.5 because I was expecting very little and I got delivered much more. Um, much more maybe an exaggeration, but I would happily have it again if the circumstances were right. And those circumstances would be, I don't know, a coven meeting, <laughs> but, or like... Restoring the Lost Ways of Avalon. Restore, yeah, if, you know, if there were a, a, a mixer for restoring the Lost Ways of Avalon. But yeah, I, um, 3.5 because I was pleasantly surprised. That's fair. And what about the uh, Bella Verita Periconi? Bless you. Um, (laughs) I I also liked this more than I thought it was going to from the first whiff. Um, This is this has been a good night for Reds. Yeah, Um, I've got to say, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go through um, three point five or a four. I'm around Ooh. that end because for me, for me to enjoy red, it's going to be high up, mm. and I think I might go for a four. Wow! I think I might. Wow! Nailed it. Um, yeah, I I was pleasantly surprised, especially like I caught a whiff of this when we opened it, and I was like, <laughs> oh god, it's going to be awful. Um, but I I think that I'm going to give it a three point five. I'm slightly grading on a curve uh, here because you said you rated it higher and I feel like I should rate it higher. But also because mm-hmm. I think that if we just had this wine, I probably would have given it more. But my mouth is defuzzed by the... By the smoothie. Fizzy smoothie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was a really nice, easy drinking wine and I didn't think it was going to be. I agree with our original assessment that it's something that you would maybe serve like with dinner as fucking wine. If there were like three of you dining and everyone gets a glass. Someone gives me a steak in this, I would be very, very Yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Mm, That's the thing. This is yes. like weeknight wine. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. is not a bad thing, but is a different thing to you've been working all week and you are finally free to be like working nine to five wine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is weeknight wine. Um and I I I have to say, I'm. I also am still obsessed with the label. I just think it's so pretty. It's very pretty. Um. So yeah, three point five for me. Uh. But we all know that I like a really robust red. So a medium-bodied wine is always going to be a little bit suffering. Fair, but I think that's still a strong evening. Of it's red. a strong evening of reds. Strong evening of wines, considering we didn't really have high hopes. No. Yeah. Exactly. I think we went into this with very low expectations on mm. wine medium expectations on the book and everything over delivered so yes nice. speaking of over delivered writing on the book need i even ask listeners take a moment to have a guess <laughs> and then just like give yourself a little pat on the back when you're right sam uh, i gave it a five on goodreads um i don't know if i gave it right, i'm going to caveat a five by saying i don't think there is such a thing as a perfect book because mm-hmm. anything you can reread in deconstruction you can find faults with anything i gave it a five 
because I was just so impressed with my first reading of it. Uh, mm-hmm. So actually, yeah, I'm going to stick with it. I was thinking, yeah. should I go for a 4.5? No. no, fuck it, 5. Okay. No. I agree, 5. Um, I agree, No, I have, you know, nothing's perfect, nobody's perfect, none of my 5 stars books are entirely without fault because um, mm-hmm. we are but humans uh, or witches <laughs> or both. but I I fucking loved it and I was really really pleased it surpassed my expectations I am delighted that we read it I'm delighted that we read it in a situation which meant that we could talk about it um, and with that so thank you for listening to Grape Culture this week. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Grape Culture Podcast. We're on Twitter at Grape Culture Pod. You can go to our website to find out more about the book or to go and buy the wines that we've been drinking today, as you probably want to, because these are actually good ones for mm-hmm. a change. Um, and the website is grapeculturepodcast.co.uk. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode for you. But in the meantime, we've got a shit ton of other episodes for you to check out on Spotify, SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. But... In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and have a good week. Bye. Bye. Bye.